For KLSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel joining me over Zoom video conference. A Senate panel advanced bills effectively banning abortions in Oklahoma. SB 1553 prohibits the procedure 30 days after the woman's last menstruation. SB 1503 is similar to a controversial law in Texas allowing lawsuits against abortion providers if it occurs when a fetal heartbeat has been detected. And SJR 37 lets voters add a provision to the state constitution that Oklahoma does not guarantee a right to abortion. Neva, do you see any reason why these bills wouldn't make it to the governor's desk? Uh, I don't. I think, as we've talked about many times, I mean, we have um, uh, the makeup of the legislature is a very strongly pro-life um, group of lawmakers. And we see these bills coming uh, uh, coming into play every session. I think in this instance, what we're seeing is uh, uh, bills in, in some measure that have been fashioned similar to the one, as you said, uh, Michael, in Texas, uh, the legislation that is uh, much more restrictive, and I think this is the direction we're seeing many states go in an attempt to um, uh, to address uh, to address the issue of uh, abortion in their in their respective states. So I, I think uh, the governor, as as we know uh, from day one, uh, running for office, said that he would be uh, a pro-life governor that would sign legislation that uh, reached his desk. So. We'll see where we'll see if these uh, hit any roadblocks. But at the at the moment, they uh, had easy uh, kind of easy passage through the initial committee process. And and we'll watch them as they go forward. Ryan. Well, this is I mean, we we see bills like this every year uh, that attacked uh, reproductive rights and the the ability of Oklahoma's uh, women and, and their doctors uh, and their families to make decisions that are best for them. Uh, but what we've seen uh, since the Supreme Court's uh, decision or, or kind of non-decision uh, with regard to Texas's abortion law that uh, basically prohibits all abortions in the state of Texas is that states have really ramped up their efforts. And so uh, these aren't the typical anti-abortion bills that you see every legislative session. I mean, you know, some of the things are rehashed, like the, the fetal heartbeat. Um, but, you know, we, we do see uh, language in these measures that would all but outlaw abortion in the state of Oklahoma. Um, and, you know, the, the authors of this legislation, uh, you know, named, you know, the, the chief author among them, Senator Treat, the president pro temp of the, the state Senate, really, you know, makes no, uh, uh, it doesn't, doesn't hide the fact that what he's trying to do is to set the stage for Oklahoma to uh, out, have, a, have an outright ban on abortion should Roe v. Wade uh, and Planned Parenthood v. Casey and the other uh, list of United States Supreme Court opinions that have guaranteed the constitutional right of abortion, should those fall. Um, and this is, uh, we, we can kind of go back in time in, in different sections here. You know, we can go back to the confirmation of uh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett to the United States Supreme Court, but we can go back, you know, really from the moment that the Supreme Court decided Roe in the early 70s, we've seen a legal battle to get to this point uh, by conservatives to return the question of abortion to the states. And uh, I think that even abortion rights act, uh, advocates um, uh, recognize that there is a likelihood that this current United States Supreme Court will uh, continue to undermine abortion rights and push more of these questions onto state governments. And it'll be a question of, of how these states respond. Do they really want to go so far as to pass laws that would require a woman uh, to carry 
uh, a child a term, uh, even though their doctors are telling them there's no way that this child is going to survive more than a second uh, or two outside uh, outside the womb, if at all. Um, you know, to me that seems like a a terrible, awful position to put uh, would be mothers in Oklahoma into, or pregnant women in Oklahoma into, uh, rather than allowing them to make that decision with their family uh, and with their physicians, and instead to have the lawmakers insert themselves into that very small exam room. Bills at the state capitol provide raises for teachers and troopers. Educators could get more money if they spend their personal time as instructional leaders or mentors and could even reach six figures if they get a master's degree. The money would come from Oklahoma lottery profits. Meanwhile, another piece of legislation gives highway patrol troopers a 35 percent pay increase. HB 4386 would put starting pay at fifty four thousand dollars annually. Ryan, what do you think of these possible raises? Well, well, I think that the races themselves, you know, sound great. I mean, if, if we want to attract and retain folks to these very difficult jobs, uh, and I, I'm not, I'm not going to get in the business of trying to compare the jobs of, of a teacher to a highway patrol trooper, but they're, they're very difficult jobs. Uh, and they, um, you know, we should be incentivizing people uh, to come to these professions that have uh, a lot of training, a lot of education, a lot of experience, and to keep the people that we have there. Uh, we've seen, not just as a result of the pandemic, even before the pandemic, uh, Oklahoma was suffering from a teacher shortage. Uh, but you know, in the in the wake of the pandemic, and as pandemic fatigue continues to uh, you know just weigh on on teachers every day, in addition to the, the the normal things that teachers are having to deal with, we're seeing a lot of teachers step out of education as their profession, and so we we do need to address this. But if you look at what Representative Fugate and Representative uh, Provenzano uh, have said about this, using the lottery funds here, um, it, one, creates an unstable source of funding. If we're going to provide these, these pay raises, we need to have a stable source of funding. And then two, uh, the way that this is set up is that it shifts a lot of the burden uh, to come up with the, the cost of paying for these pay raises to the districts themselves, but then doesn't give the districts the money that they need to uh, be able to take advantage of this matching fund that would come from the state to increase salaries. Um, so as, as much as I want all teachers in the state of Oklahoma to make $100,000, and I wish that we could recruit highway patrol troopers at a much higher rate than what they what they start at, um, this to me seems uh, like it's, it's probably uh, more wishful thinking and more illusory uh, at this moment. Now, the state just certified, you know, we have we have a lot of money uh, to, to appropriate mm -hmm. for this budget cycle. Um, so there's a potential uh, that we could see pay raises. Uh, but I think that it's more likely uh, to for people, for teachers and troopers to see this in their actual paycheck if it comes from a stable funding source and if it benefits all of the teachers and all of the troopers out there and doesn't push it off to, especially on the on the part of the teachers, push it off to the local districts to come up with the funding. Neva. Well, I think it's interesting. I, I see the uh, uh, the trooper bill as one that uh, has a lot of uh, has a lot of support, starting with the Speaker of the House, uh, many others uh, uh, that have expressed an interest, believing that this is the time for this to occur. Um, you know, I think making the case that it's been since 2015 since they've had their last raise, and they're in a they're in a position as uh, as we oftentimes see where. Uh, you have a lot of folks eligible to retire, 
uh, and you have, uh, you know, a more limited pool, it appears, of, of uh, finding recruits and uh, cadets that can come in and fill those spots. So I think that uh, I think that there's a pretty high expectation uh, among, you know, the capital folks uh, that uh, that the trooper bill will get, uh, you know, will get uh, passed. And I think the question then becomes, will the governor sign it? There seems to be some uh, feeling of uh, 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 in some circles that the governor will use this as leverage. He wants the consolidation of uh, all of the public safety agencies. There's been a great deal of resistance in uh, in in the uh, legislature uh, among lawmakers who don't, uh, many who don't believe this is a good move. And so, um, you know, I think there'll be some intrigue uh, if the, if the uh, trooper pay raise passes uh, will the governor uh, attempt to veto it uh, will there will there be that kind of uh, give and take later in the session i think that's one of the things that we'll have to watch and it's somewhat uh, the same picture i think on the on the teacher uh, pay raise talking about a six figure salary is really not the discussion i think as much as uh, maybe a move toward uh, uh, really kind of realigning the teacher salary schedule and moving to something that is about making uh, teacher competitive pay, which means it changes the whole dynamic and changes the whole uh, debate, I think, certainly with the uh, folks within the uh, uh, the education community. Uh, and so I think that I think this is something that is maybe part of a larger discussion, maybe uh, an issue that doesn't have as much traction. I mean, let's face it, the teachers have received pay raises in recent years. I mean, they this is not a front burner issue, I think, with many lawmakers. And so it'll be part of the broader education discussion. But I'm not sure it uh, I, I'm not sure it's a case where both will kind of have easy sledding. I think the uh, I think the time has come on the trooper pay raise, and uh, I think that is the one that is it would appear at this point more likely to be successful in being passed. And and Neva, when you th when you talk about the governor on the trooper pay raise, uh, you mentioned the speaker, the House uh, or the Senate Chairman of Appropriations, Roger Thompson, uh, is is also uh, a champion of this. He said that we've got the money, and these troopers. Uh, need this pay raise now. Uh, and, you know, I've worked with Senator Thompson on, on a number of things. He is a formidable opponent at the Capitol. Uh, and whenever he decides that something needs to happen, uh, he usually has a lot of ways of trying to, of, of accomplishing that. And so I would, I, I would agree. <laughs> absolutely, Ryan. Absolutely. And, and, and I think and the other so, point that excuse me, but the other point that he made was that I thought was interesting is that he is not for across the board uh, pay raises. I mean, he is for targeted pay raises with this one in particular being noteworthy. Well, and, and Senator Thompson uh, has, has got to know, like everybody, that the governor is walking into an election cycle mm -hmm. uh, where he might very well have primary opponents. He'll certainly have a credible general, a, a, a credible general election opponent, Joy Hoffmeister, um, and so does the governor really want to have somebody from his own party, uh, like the, the speaker or Senator Thompson, pointing out to folks that he's standing in the way or playing politics with the trooper pay raise? Uh, that seems seems a dangerous game of chicken for the for the governor to get involved in. A bill to ban mandatory vaccinations gets put on hold by the author. SB 1128 would prohibit a person or company from mandating any vaccination, injection, shot, or medication for a virus or disease as a condition of continued employment. 
However, Senator Blake Stevens ended up delaying his measure. Neva, why did he do this delay? Well, I think uh, if if anyone uh, was in the room during the hearing or anyone has read any of the accounts uh, after the hearing, I mean, there were so many questions posed. I mean, that that frankly, the bill's author was unable to uh, sufficiently answer, which was the reason that uh, it, they asked for it to be laid over. But I think the other thing is, I mean, as one of the uh, lawmakers pointed out, I mean, it, it we have requirements and have had requirements for decades for tests such as for tuberculosis uh, uh, that that are required. And so I think as they begin to raise the issue of what's going to happen if we potentially shut down hospitals or we potentially uh, shut down nursing homes or clinics as, as a result of uh, this. And the, again, the unintended consequences of, of a bill that uh, kind of throws the issue out there, but doesn't have the work behind it to answer, answer the questions and the concerns that many, uh, not just lawmakers, but many uh, just looking at this particular piece of legislation had questions about. So uh, whether it comes back up, uh, whether it gets uh, greatly uh, uh, altered in its form and uh, uh, and we'll just have to wait and see. But again, we're in this early process in committee hearings uh, where we are uh, in the committee work where we are seeing these bills move through. And, And I think many people are sitting back going, are these bills really going to be heard? I mean, that's always the question first. I mean, are some of these bills just not going to be heard? And that, of course, is uh, that's where leadership, the committee chairs and that whole process uh, really drives that train. And we'll just have to see uh, with the with this particular bill uh, where it goes. Ryan. Well, and Neva, that's that's exactly what Senator Lee, right, the chair of this committee said. He said uh, this he'd had people criticizing him for even giving this bill a hearing. He said, no, we're going to have this conversation. And I think that he felt it was important to have this conversation, maybe even among Republicans, because those were the only folks that were really talking during this committee hearing. Uh, you know, uh, we were we were actually taping uh, last week while this committee hearing was starting. And I was at the Capitol and I kept receiving text messages from people saying, are you watching this? Uh, because it was a masterclass in how not to have your bill presented in a committee. Uh, no, no disrespect to Senator Stevens at all, but uh, everybody has kind of mentioned, this is this is what you don't want to happen when your bill comes up. Um, and when you have Senator Paxton and Senator Garvin, uh, who both came you, you know, uh, just loaded for bear uh, in their questions, you know, Senator Stevens really didn't have a chance. And it, it's kind of an interesting dynamic within the Republican Party, because on, on one hand, you have Senator Stevens, who's running this bill saying individuals need to have this, this personal right, this, this individual liberty to be able to uh, decline uh, a vaccine or some sort of medical requirement that a private employer, and remember these are, this is talking about private employers that a private employer might impose upon an employee, um, or uh, as Senator Paxton and Garvin uh, had said, you know, does the employer have the right to say, this is how I want to conduct my business, and I'm going to I'm going to do it uh, I'm going to do it my way, whether you agree with it or not. And you know that's that's a real kind of uh, you know dynamic within the conservative within conservative politics and and the Republican Party right now uh, that was interesting to see to play out in real time at, at this hearing. Uh, I doubt that this bill is going to to come back, um, and, and if and if it does, I would imagine that it is significantly pared down. 
uh, and doesn't and isn't as um, uh, an absolute prohibition on employers because uh, I cannot see Senator Paxton uh, or Senator Garvin, uh, you know, giving up their opposition uh, just because it got laid over. I, I think that uh, this is probably the last we've heard of this for this session, at least in the Senate. And I think you're right, Ryan. I think it is it is the real core question of what Republicans believe with respect to private business and what they should or should not be dictated to by the by the government. I mean, should these should these types of bills and these types of bans be imposed upon them? And I think that's a great uh, a great philosophical question and certainly a highly debatable question from the legislative standpoint. We've seen it. We saw it begin last session. I think we've, we're seeing it again this session. But uh, uh, it is something where I think I think business uh, certainly business owners across the state are paying attention. Uh, uh, people that uh, really want to see where in in the instance of their own respective lawmakers where they come down on issues like this that are so vitally important to their own livelihoods and to their own uh, uh, to their own success. Attorney General John O'Connor says he's going to review 54 books to see if they violate state law on obscene materials. A spokesperson says the AG's office received complaints on the books from people. While many of the books are relatively new, the list also includes classics like Brave New World, Of Mice and Men, and Maya Angelou's I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. Neva, what happens if the state's top prosecutor rules these books violate state law? Well, I think I think we're a long way from, I would think, the attorney general making any kind of determination like that. I think the bigger question is kind of how did it wind up in the attorney general's uh, purview this at this point anyway? I mean, were was it lawmakers or who who was pushing uh, to really uh, have this kind of thrust upon the attorney, the attorney general at the at this point? Because when you really look at it, I mean, this is a conversation that goes back to last fall. It's gotten a lot of traction on a lot of the the national uh, talking head shows and and uh, folks talking about it. We had the the um, the instance of this. I believe it was a list of 60 in Texas. Um, but we've had instances in Oklahoma where uh, we have had parents that have had issues with books in a in a school district and have gone through the process. Uh, the I believe uh, in the instance of one of the uh, uh, schools in uh, I believe it was Bixby, but uh, they had they had an instance where they went through the process. The parents uh, found that they objected to a couple of books. The library, the school system, the 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 local school in question went through that process. They didn't like the result, which was they said the books would stay uh, in the library. They then appealed to the school board. The school board went through their review process and ultimately determined, I believe unanimously, that again, the books would stay. And so there, there are these processes already in place within the framework of uh, the Department of Ed and the school districts to be able to address address these matters, these concerns by parents at the local school level. So I think um, I, I think this kind of overarching shot of we're, we're going to take it all the way to the top and have the conversation then kind of trickle back down. Um, I think a lot of people are shaking their heads and, and wondering, uh, really, how did we get here? So it will be interesting to see how this moves forward. And I think the backdrop, obviously, is that uh, uh, we have a situation where 
uh, it, it, we're in a political season where all of this is going to be much more highly charged because of that dynamic and, and many of these folks being on the ballot. Ryan. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to offend anybody, so I'm going to, I'm going to censor myself here. Uh, what in the H-E double hockey sticks is the attorney general thinking here? I, I, it just, just, you know, you have to ask what decade are we in? And I, I know that everything old is, is new again. And it's, it's, you know, it's, it's almost an American tradition uh, for uh, small groups of parents to, you know, come into this fever pitch hysteria about uh, a title that's in the local library. And, but like Neva said, there's a process for that. And that process generally works. Sometimes you don't like the outcome of it, but that's just the way things go. Uh, and, but I, I do think that we have to uh, ask what decade is it, 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 you know, in 2022, um, do we, can we, is there really any question in the attorney general's office that Brave New World is obscene or that of mice and men is obscene, that that question even comes up, that somebody saw that list and said, yeah, we need to, we need to look into that and see if this is obscene. That doesn't make any sense. Um, it just, to me, it seems absurd. It's, it's overreach. Uh, I propose that we pivot to tackle a real problem. Uh, and that's to get kids to read books in the first place. Uh, everybody's so what's so concerned about these books, but you know, trying to get my kids off of Roblox and and, and to read a book, uh, let's you know, let's focus on that. So I'm establishing, uh, I'm hereby establishing the O'Connor Obscene Book Club. Uh, we're, <laughs> you know, we we can all read through these books, and then when we're done, because I know that you know this this filth is just gonna is just gonna rot our soul. Uh, so we we will cleanse ourselves with some wholesome entertainment like Bob's Burgers or something like that afterwards uh, to uh, to help, you know, get us back in, into a good, good standard of living. But this is just, this is ridiculous. And I think that uh, for folks that think that this is a problem, I, I encourage you, talk to your local librarians, talk to your school librarians, learn about their process of how they select books uh, and how they check out books and who's eligible to check out books. Um, and, you know, the, this idea that we can censor our way into, into a world uh, where, our, where our kids aren't seeing this stuff. They're, they're, I'm much more concerned about you know, what my kid might see on TikTok than, I'm, than I am about what they're going to see in their public library. Uh, so this, this is, a, again, a, a political problem that's being manufactured for political purposes. Uh, and I hope, that, uh, I hope that cooler heads will prevail. You know, I think it is. I think it is important to note that I think everyone probably would would uh, agree, for the most part, that uh, that obscene material uh, that is uh, uh, that is in the hands or potentially in the hands of minor children is an issue. But it is a parental issue. It's a school issue, and it's a local a local school issue, uh, largely because. When parents have concerns, there is a process for those concerns to be heard. And, you know, let's face it, it's like anything else from a governance standpoint. If folks become enraged, uh, if they have something happening uh, in their in their own libraries where they do not like the books on the shelves, they they have a process. I mean, they have a process through the schools and they have a process ultimately where they can where they can uh, uh, take out those school board members and replace them with people that are, you know, that are more like minded with the uh, discussion that's at hand. So, again, I think uh, the legislature, whether they pursue these with great uh, zeal or not this session, I think uh, in my mind, it goes back to the discussion we've had many times about local control, parental responsibility, and parental rights to have that uh, say, but within the within the proper context. 
Well, it's, you know, if you look at the state definition of obscene material, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a pretty, you know, it, it says that it's, uh, and I'm not going to read the entire thing here, but a performance depiction, description of sexual conduct um, that is uh, purient uh, in nature and lacks uh, any serious literary, artistic, educational, political, or scientific purposes or value. Um, to me, you looking at this, these books on the list, uh, you know, somebody made a joke on Twitter and I'm so sorry that I can't remember their handle right now to give them attribution for this, but it was a great joke. And I, but it has a lot of truth to me. I'm, I'm, I see uh, a lot more obscenity in these erectile dysfunction uh, commercials that play on the radio all the time than I, than I do in, in what I see in libraries. I'm sitting at the waiting room at IHOP uh, on Saturday with my kids and listening to an ED commercial over the radio. Uh, you know, that's, that, you know, if anything's obscene, you know, that's more so than anything that's in these books. Uh, but even then, you know, censorship is, is rarely, if ever, the answer. Democratic congressional candidate Abby Broyles is apologizing for her alleged actions over Valentine's Day weekend. A story first reported in Nondoc included accusations of Broyles getting drunk at a sleepover with middle school girls, berating them and vomiting in a hamper. At first, she denied being at the party, but later said she had an adverse reaction to wine and sleep medication. Ryan, how could this impact her attempt to challenge Congresswoman Stephanie Bice in CD5? Well, I don't think that anyone ever thought that Abby Broyles was going, especially after redistricting, uh, that she was going to be in a position to defeat Stephanie Bice. I think that when the legislature, if the legislature did anything with redistricting, it protected the 5th Congressional District for a decade uh, for Republicans hand, Republican hands, almost certainly. So it was going to be a very uphill battle for uh, for anyone, uh, including Abby Broyles, before this incident to be able to unseat Stephanie Bice um, or any Republican that's uh, that wins the, the primary campaign uh, for that race, for the uh, for the CD5 race. Uh, but, you know, it, does she stay in the race? I mean, she, now she's uh, saying that she's going to, to remain in the campaign. Um, I think that people have been calling on the Democratic Party to, uh, you know, say that she can't run. I don't know that the party has that power mm -hmm. uh, to, to, to tell somebody that they can't run the way that the party uh, exercises its voice there is in the nominating process and folks go vote in the primary. And if she has a primary opponent right now, I, I bet that any primary opponent that she's uh, that she's got has an upper hand uh, in that race as of now. Um, yeah, I think there are a lot of a lot of angles to this. Um, you know, not the least of which is that it, it appears that you you know we're seeing unfold in real time um, a a person in uh, in a lot of trouble. Uh, and, and trying to deal with that, uh, or maybe not dealing with it. We don't really know. Uh, the other thing that I think is, is worth pointing out is just the solid journalism that we saw from, uh, from Nondoc in, in putting this story together, uh, because they, they faced a lot of uh, hurdles in doing so, including you know, threats from Abby Broyles that she would sue them if they published uh, this information. And so I think that uh, you know, we can, we can uh, at least you know, find you know, some some bright spot in all of this is that we've got a really strong, uh, such strong journalism in Oklahoma and, you know, non-doc being, uh, you know, at, at the forefront of this story, of course. Neva. 
I think non-doc driving the story, breaking the story. Now it's become it's become a national story, unfortunately. I mean, it's become a story in People magazine. It's become uh, jokes on Jimmy Fallon. And I think from a political standpoint, the most uh, uh, the, the most significant uh, comments that have been made have been actually by a spokesman for the DCCC, the Democrat Con- Congressional Campaign Committee, uh, who came out and said that uh, basically that they were distancing uh, itself uh, from Abby Broyles um, and said specifically that they were not working with Abby Broyles' campaign and that they condemned what they called her abhorrent abhorrent uh, behavior. So that's pretty strong language. I mean, and to roll out uh, in Politico, uh, have this, uh, which is the kind of the, uh, the, the, the the digest that everyone in political circles nationally reads in the congressional and, and senatorial races. Um, I think that puts the race, which was already on an uphill climb, just as Ryan said, I mean, based on uh, uh, based on redistricting, based on the fact that uh, um, and also let's look at uh, her her previous track record. I mean, she uh, she lost by 30 points in the last election when she ran against Senator Jim Inhofe. So this is something that uh, I, I think we'll watch with interest, whether she chooses to continue to uh, uh, be a candidate for office. I think she's now seeing a lot of uh, a lot of significant roadblocks uh, coming up in front of her. Right. That doesn't mean right. that her political career's over, uh, but I, I do think that, you know, if, if this is just unsolicited advice, Get out of the race. Step back. Take care of yourself. Own up to what you've done, uh, and then you know. Then if you are still drawn to public service, there's opportunity to do that. But 2022 ain't the year for you. Well, and I think also, I mean, to continue to uh, kind of escalate the story on her own by these recent tweets this week, where she basically is she's she's calling this controversy, in her words, a painful attack on her character. Uh, really uh, kind of flies in the face of all of the published accounts uh, that we have uh, that we have heard and seen and read uh, in the past week on this uh, particular instance incident that has uh, come to light. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.